it's a it's a difficult one. So yeah, it's Shade, which I guess there's a whole backstory as to like the way that the Nigerian phonetic alphabet works and everything, but I will spare you the details. So yes, Shade works. No, 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 no. Please don't spare me the details. <laughs> I I it hit me with the etymological hardcore facts. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Yeah, so before we get into things today, uh, I just want to alert you to my new show called Notes from the Field. It's a podcast, and it's about travel. And travel is something that I haven't been able to do recently. None of us have really been able to do it to the extent that we probably like recently. And uh, it's something that I have an intellectual interest in in the sense that I'm very fascinated by the idea of people who go to some place they don't know anything about, try and get a sense of what's happening, what the people are up to, and then return back home to tell everyone else about what they saw. And the, the classic example of this is the old school anthropologist. And in, in a sense, that's kind of what I'm going for here. And I miss, I miss being out there in the world. I miss being out there in the field. And so I went through some of my old notes from places that I've been and things that I've experienced, things that I've seen, and I put that together into a show which I hope you will enjoy. So you can find that anywhere that you listen to your podcast, Notes from the Field. I have right here a review from an acquaintance. Uh, we met, I don't know, maybe a year ago, and we, you know, it was one of those things that you meet someone, you spend an afternoon together, you, you know, keep in touch with them on Instagram, but you never actually talk to them again in any meaningful sense or a friend. So it's not, this isn't, you know, from my best friend or anything. This is from someone relatively random, but he sent me a nice note that said, hey, just listened to you pod and just wanted to say it was fantastic. I thought you had some real gems in there. I loved the pacing and your pierogi story had my sides splitting. Congrats. Um, so I really appreciated that note and I just want to, you know, maybe use that as encouragement to say, uh, I hope that this uh, would, will be a show that you find enjoyable and that my friends and listeners will appreciate. So if you, like me, are missing travel, then go check out season one of Notes from the Field. Last week's episode was Warsaw, and this week's episode coming out on Thursday is Moscow. Okay. Um, so to the show today, to my guest, her name is Shade Abiodun, and she's got a really interesting story. Uh, I was drawn to her because she is both a neuroscientist, a graduate student at um, Princeton, and uh, just starting her first year, and uh, also a filmmaker. She had a, sh uh, a film come out uh, a, a little while ago called Godspeed, a short film, and it did well on the festival circuit and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think that that's extremely cool. And so I also wanted to talk to someone about just their experience beginning graduate school and particularly their beginning graduate school under the inauspicious uh, circumstances of COVID. And so some of the things we talk about are balancing graduate school with non-graduate school projects. You know, so for example, filmmaking, podcasting, whatever you're doing on the side, how do you get that to fit in with what you're actually supposed to be doing? 
We talk about opportunities for reinvention of identity that come with the beginning of graduate school and really in the beginning of any new phase of life where particularly when you pick up and move from wherever you have been to somewhere new. We talk about uh, starting graduate school and the effects of COVID. We talk about connecting film and neuroscience and in uh, Sade's particular interest, which is naturalistic stimuli. We also uh, make an attempt to get the hashtag neurocinematics movement going. And then we wrap up uh, by touching on a paper that Sade had written a couple of years back, which was on race and neuroscience. And as that's a conversation that has recently opened back up in a very fervent way, uh, I wanted to get some of her perspective on what she had initially said there and any additions to the co that conversation she would like to make. And so it was a fun conversation. I think it's uh, a really useful perspective for you know people who are getting started in their graduate school career. And uh, Sade uh, just has a lot of really interesting and wise and funny stuff to say. So I think you will all enjoy it. Without further ado, this is Sade Abiyod. So essentially, so my father is Nigerian and my mother is South African. And so Sade is a kind of a short contraction of what is a much longer first name, which is part of a much longer first plus four middle names plus last name combination. But the name Sade or my full name Fula Sade actually means wealth is my crown, which kind of makes me feel like my parents decided to call me a gold digger from birth. It's a little bit concerning to me, but it's fine. Um, but in, in Yoruba, which is the language that my, or the tribe that my dad is from in Nigeria, the S is pronounced S-H when it's spoken. So any names that you see with like just the isolated S, it's actually S-H. And from what I understand, the only other, or not the only other, but another language or kind of phonetic translation that's similar to that is Irish, where you have like Siobhan, so on and so forth, with the S has like that distinct S-H sound. Um, and so I was joking with someone the other day about my secret Irish heritage that no one knows about, which uh, it might be there. I, I might surprise myself one day and take a 23andMe test and see how that comes out. But You know, I'm actually a fan of that, uh, not taking a 23andMe test, because then you can posture to have any sort of uh, ethnic or, you know, heritage that you want without having true. to be constrained by fact. <laughs> and uh, I, I find that very freeing. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I, I sort of circulate between Welsh, Dutch, um, and, a, and a few different like that, which I think bear no correspondence with reality, but, you know. Uh, okay, and then I understand you have some middle names, though. Yes, lots of middle names. Um, the SAT was a nightmare to take because I just ran out of bubbles to fill it in. But my full name is Falashade Johanna Matsiso Maria Machaba Abiyoden. Um, but I just go by Shade for, not even for simplicity's sake. It's not that. I think I've tied the most meaning and identity to Shade as a name. Um, but all of the different middle names are, that are in there. Some of them are maiden names from my mother's side. Some of them are the names of matriarchs and patriarchs from both my mother and father's side. And truly, it was kind of this thing where each year of my life, my parents basically bestowed on me a new name. So they said, this is, this is your other name that you didn't know about before. Um, 
And so it's like a birthday present. (laughs) Exactly. Instead of an actual birthday present, I suppose it was cost efficient as well. Um, And so I've just been discovering new things about myself with every year of my life. Hopefully by the time I hit 30, I will have um, all 27. Is that a wild animal in your... This is my cat. This is Oak. She she really loves Zoom calls, especially when I'm on camera for them. And so you might see and hear her. She's just going to take over a segment of me talking on the podcast today at some point. So um, yeah, probably write some some key portions of your academic papers. I'm sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and she she always asks for first first authorship, and it's it's always awkward, a very squirrely discussion that we have. Um, so the reason I was asking about your middle names is that you mentioned it on your website, and you have an awesome website. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, when did you when did you when did you put that together? That's a good question. I guess right when I was. That's a good question, actually. I don't remember what the initial point at which I said I need a website because I think when you come around to making a website, you have to feel important enough to actually need a website. You say, I have to establish my presence on the internet. People will visit this. They will interact with this. I have to have something to share. Um, And so I think it was at a point where I'd been, I graduated, um, done a little bit of my, you know, academic work, had a few whether it be papers published or just like research conference presentations and things like that. So I had a little bit of my established, you know, academic presence, but also I'd started kind of venturing into things creatively and working on some, you know, film and creative projects. And so I think I said, or I don't actually think it was myself who came up with the idea originally, I think someone else did, where it was basically, well, maybe it would be good to have all of this, you know, combined and kind of uh, in some singular place where someone can go and find it all out. And also I had done a little bit of web design work for the lab that I was in as a lab manager previously and web design meaning just going on square space and moving around boxes, but that is a legitimate, you know, web design venture in itself. Um, Oh, so legit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I said, well, I've, you know, made a few websites for other people. I really enjoy it why don't I at this point just make one for myself, not assuming that anyone was going to visit it or that it would be, you know, anything other than just a a place that all of the random things that I was doing and a little bit of my personality could show up on the internet in a way that I can control. There's definitely probably several really embarrassing videos of me dancing to like Taylor Swift on the internet somewhere else, but not on my website. Um, it's definitely an exercise in controlling the narrative, right? Exactly. Because Twitter exactly. and Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever it is, they give you a box. And it's like, well, what if my stuff doesn't fit in this box? Right. You don't want to be confined by society's expectations. My website is my rebellion. Oh, yeah. Um, but I only partially agree with your evaluation uh, of it because it's not just about having enough cool stuff to put on there, but it's also about conferring legitimacy to what you've done. So it doesn't actually matter if you have enough stuff to merit a website or if anyone's <laughs> going to visit it. Like at least the majority of the fun of it is taking whatever you do have, however you know inane and banal it is, and giving it a home and saying you're putting a bow on it and saying this Absolutely. is this is my presentation of my stuff. take it take my take my gift to you my my internet yeah. presence. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, and then, you know, slowly as people trickle into it, they say, oh, wow, this, this person, you know, it, it really brings this, you know, sort of personal element to it. And that's, uh, uh, you know, definitely one of the things that drew, drew me to you. Um, but I, so one of the main components of your, of your website is uh, your filmmaking, particularly your, I believe is your most recent short film, Godspeed. Mm -hmm. So I, I poked around, I wasn't able to, to view it. So let me know if there is, if I missed it, if there is actually a place where people can, can, can watch it. But why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, what that project uh, is and what it means to you and, and, and yeah, what the details surrounding that. Absolutely. So Godspeed was my, I guess, legitimate venture into the world of filmmaking because I you know, contrary, not contrary to popular belief per se, but I have been trained very formally and kind of in this lifelong way as a scientist and went to my undergrad institution, studied neuroscience, knew that after graduating, I was either going to go to med school or go to grad school. I, I actually knew I wasn't going to med school. That was just to please my parents, but knew I was going to stay within the realm of academia in some way, shape or form, but also had this sort of perennial desire to find creative outlets and sort of explore things creatively. And so um, the long and short of it is that I got to take a cinematography class my senior year that I just absolutely fell in love with because it exposed me to the technical, logistical side of um, visual narrative building and world building and, and creativity and just, you know, filmmaking. And it was an itch that I knew I would have to scratch later. And so I graduated, um, I stuck around Duke University, which is where I went to undergrad, and stayed in contact with many of the kind of creative artistic people that I met during undergrad. And just at one point or another, I think it was early February, 2019, I was listening to a song, which I do relatively frequently, but I was listening to Godspeed by Frank Ocean, um, one of my favorite artists. And just, it, it sounds very kind of like ethereal for me to say, oh, a, a very powerful visual struck me and everything like that. But honestly and truly, I just, I was listening to the song and I said, oh, this would make a beautiful visual poem. Um, this would be, this would be beautiful to play out on the screen. I really, the interpretation that I had of the song was him speaking to past versions of himself and essentially saying, you know, I'll always love you. I'm wishing you the best. Um, and it was this love letter to himself. And I said, well, I want to take this. I want to take this song or the meaning behind the song and sort of translate it to the story of Black womanhood, because of course that's the lens through which I see the world. And I had that idea and of course assumed that it would go nowhere because I was in my, or I was, I guess, in between my first and second year of my uh, full-time research position at Duke working a full-time schedule, preparing to apply to grad school. It was, it was kind of just a shot in the dark type thing, but it was also such an incessant idea that I decided to meet with some of those aforementioned artistic creative people that I still, you know, stuck or had still stuck around and I still talked to and said, I have this idea and I have no idea what to do with it. If anything, I, I think at first I wanted to pass it off to someone that I thought could more legitimately um, actualize it. Because I said, I'm not a filmmaker. I just love films and I love making things, but I can't make films. It doesn't work that way. Um, but 
one of my mentors at the time, who was actually the instructor, the professor uh, who led the cinematography class that I loved, essentially said to me, you know, if you can cast this film, like if you can figure out who's going to be in it and everything like that, I can shoot it for you. And that was the beginning of what just ended up being such a chaotic, creative spiral of events um, where I wrote a screenplay for the first time. I produced and kind of pulled in all these different elements of production in terms of finding locations and, and figuring out, you know, costs and everything like that. And then also directed it for the first time. And it, it felt like just a massive experiment in itself. And I think that's the lens through which I had to approach the project because I hadn't, you know, done anything on that large scale, larger scale of production before that I said, well, this is just an, a giant experiment. I'm designing it. I'm thinking of the methods, the approach, and then I'm, you know, setting the parameters, kind of controlling for certain variables, so on and so forth. Um, and so we shot it in July of 2019 um, over the course of, I think it was four days or so, and finished. And that in itself is an entire another podcast worth of stories, all the highs and lows of actually making that film. But um, I then spent the subsequent four to five months just editing it by myself and saying, okay, I have all of this footage and I think I have to put it together and make a film. Um, and there's a lot of things in filmmaking that you realize there are subsequent, you know, events and things you have to control for, like how am I going to find music? How am I going to, you know, do the color grading and everything like that? But somehow, in some crazy turn of turn of events, it actually did become a film. And by the time I was submitting my grad school applications, and I think I actually submitted my first few grad applications relatively early because the week or, or the days or the weeks afterwards, I started submitting the film to film festivals. And so clearly I have my priorities on straight. Um, but yeah, and, and Godspeed, I think if I were to give a little bit of a synopsis as to what it's about, it's a story that follows a character through four distinct stages of her life. And she explores and tackles different elements of her identity, of womanhood, of her relationship with her mother. Um, and it's very much a, it's meant to be this abstract piece. It's not very linear. Um, it's at its heart of hearts, a visual poem, kind of a, a cinepoem, sometimes people call it. Um, and it's thus far gotten its fair share of, of love and appreciation from people, from festivals, from you know different media and filmmaking platforms and outlets, which has been absolutely amazing. And of course, I guess my venture into that world of filmmaking coincided with my introduction to how filmmaking can be incorporated into research and neuroscience. And so discovering the world of naturalistic stimuli use, discovering the world okay, of well, let, wait, wait, let's, let's, Oh, yes, let's, yes, yes. I, I want to get into that, um, but I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to break down some of the, um, the film stuff first. Okay. Yes. Let's break it down. Let's break um, it down. Yeah. Oh my God. So, okay. So first of all, uh, all that, that's what we in the business called making moves. That's, <laughs> that's, that's some good stuff right there. Um, very cool. So much that I love about that. One thing that stands out to me is that you had this thought and you're like, Hey, this would be a cool project. And then you did it. You like, you, you just, you actually did the project. And I think so many of us can relate to, gosh, you know, this would make a, an awesome 
you know, whatever uh, you're thinking about at the time, screenplay, poem, podcast, uh, you know, podcast. this or that, whatever it is. <laughs> um, but then you don't see it through. And that's sort of the normal mode of, of creativity in everyday life is a brilliant idea and then it goes away. So I think that's that's amazing that you were able to pull it off, especially given that you did it in circumstances that were not you know guaranteed. It's not like you had this big background as a filmmaker. Um, so I think that's really cool. And I think that bodes well for your grad school career because I think that's uh, something we can all relate to as well, which is um, you know getting started on a scientific project and uh, um, you know, having a hard time seeing it through. So Absolutely. I think that's really Absolutely. cool to see. Um, but another thing that's, that's fascinating to me about that is that, you know, there is, uh, so one thing that I really love and that I try to explore on this show is I love people who have a sort of dynamic, multidimensional relationship to the world, right? Mm -hmm. Cause we're all, we're all interested in science. We're interested in neuroscience, psychology, whatever it is. Uh, and we all get how, cool that is and that's you know so we've got, uh, we have this professional investment in it but um the world at the end of the day is larger than the brain Very true. um and uh being able to uh sort of interact with the thickness of it the all of the different aspects that there are to interact with that to me is uh uh in a lot of ways what life is all about and so i'm always hugely impressed uh by people who i think do that, you know, maybe you could think of it as broad scholarship of finding different ways to interact with the world and to, you know, sort of to capture beauty and truth, whether that's through art um, and visual media or audio, verbal, uh, scientific, whatever, whatever, whatever the medium, whatever the, the sort of lens is. I just think that that's uh, fantastic when people can uh, especially excel in multiple of them. I feel that in a lot of ways. I think there's a certain, and I've used this word so often, so it's almost starting to lose meaning in my mind in a way, but a multitudinous nature to the world that we inhabit. And therefore we only can take a multitudinous approach to understanding it and kind of digesting it. And I think I've always been so attracted to, like every basically echoing everything that you said, when you see people are, who are able to take this broad approach, who are able to not just try to boil down the world or, or aspects of life into these single point, like single fact type of um, postulations, because that's in reality not how it works. There's noise, there is interference, there is ambiance, there is color, there's all these different things. And I always thought, um, especially growing up and sort of trying to Put myself in this frame of mind of what do I want to be? You know, the question of what do I want to be when I grow up? And then when you're in high school, who do I want to be when I'm in college? And then when you're in college, who do I want to, what, what job do I want to have? And then after you get a job, is this it? Is this the end? Um, but through all of those stages, there's this sense of exploration or this, this questioning, this doubting or seeing things outside of the box almost makes you feel as though you're a bad scientist because it, it makes you feel in a, a certain way that you're unable to focus or you're unable to, to um, summarize the, the findings and all the input and the intake and have this very clear linear output. But now what I'm discovering, and I'm still very, 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 very emphasis on very early in this stage of my you know, career trajectory and, and figuring the, these things out, but 
that exploration, that wide eyedness is so necessary for dynamic science, um, just dynamic, uh, outside of even science, like dynamic academia, dynamic exploration in general. And so I also find myself very much drawn to people and schools of thought that seem to push on those barriers, if not ignore the barriers altogether and just allow the interdisciplinary, interdimensional approach to things to be the regular kind of standard approach. 100%, yeah. But le okay, but let's not forget how insane the fact is that you had this thought, which was, I'm going to make a film. <laughs> you and love the you thought. made love a film. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you, like, one day you weren't a filmmaker, and then now you are. Absolutely. Uh, and so, is that something you're going to continue to do now? Is that, is that now, now do you have, like, projects that are, like, are in the, or what does that look like for you going forward? That's a great question. And I always... to be wildly optimistic as well. <laughs> I will be. I always take the approach of being either a wild optimist or a wild pessimist. Never in the middle. Um, but... I, what's hilarious about that whole one day you were a filmmaker and then, or the one day you weren't a filmmaker and the next you were, is that my sister absolutely teases me about that to, to no avail, to no end, where she says, you took one film class and now you are, you know, in this world, you're doing all these different things. And that apparently is how it works, which I wish, you know, it was the same with science if I, you know, was just one day a scientist, one day I wasn't, or the other way around. But um, so yes, I do hope to continue scratching that itch and continue exploring filmmaking, though at this point, what's been very interesting, so I've, I've gotten the chance to build or begin building a network of mentors. And of course, I've had the ever-growing network of scientific and academic mentors over the course of my life. But now also creating this network of creative artistic mentors, which has been absolutely amazing. Um, and another cool thing about Godspeed is that I set it free into the world and it sort of propagated in its own ways and opened up doors and opportunities to things, one of which was um, the Sundance Institute, which is a very you know widely acclaimed film body um, that I submitted the film and completely forgot that I submitted the film, to be honest, to a fellowship that they had and submitted it and hadn't heard back for months or along those lines, gone through my grad school interviews, everything like that. So I was waiting to hear back from grad schools and then got a an email one day from Sundance saying that I was the finalist for this fellowship. And I said, oh my goodness, this isn't a scam email, this is real. Um, and essentially, That's bananas. It, it was bananas. That is the perfect way to describe it. Um, and got to go through the interview process with the uh, mentors for the fellowship, essentially them choosing from hundreds upon hundreds of short films by young creators, young filmmakers um, to be part of this fellowship um, program. And I didn't end up getting the fellowship, which it was, I will not lie, very devastating because I built this entire world of being both uh, you know, Princeton grad student and the Sundance Fellow at the same time and all these different things. But what was also great is that a few days after getting that rejection email, I got another email from Sundance and they reached back out and said, um, essentially, although you didn't, we didn't have space for you in the fellowship this year, one of the mentors in the fellowship was so taken by your work that he essentially wants to continue mentoring you and he wants to work with you 
um, if you'd be willing and able to do that. And I said, I would absolutely be willing and able to do that. That is beyond anything I could have expected. And so I was able to connect with this truly, again, just widely acclaimed filmmaker um, who saw something in my one piece of work that I submitted and, and thought that I had some ability or skill or talent that could be propagated forward. And also, I think he was really interested in that neuroscience film combination as well and said and we were and we were facetiming one day we were talking and he said i think you you're onto something that it might take others a few years to to get onto so i i think you should do something with that but what was very um comforting in the advice that he gave me and also very comforting in the advice that i've now gotten from subsequent you know just fantastic filmmakers directors that i've been connected to since then is it is completely and totally okay to just spend the next five years being a grad student, just to get your PhD, you know, five, seven, however long it takes, get your PhD, kind of solidify that chapter. And then afterwards, the film world will still be there. And the, some of the momentum might be lost. That's true if you're not creating active, actively for that whole time, but the opportunities will come back and it will rise again. And you want to make sure that when you go back to creating that you're doing it from a very organic, very kind of free place of doing that, where you're able to focus wholly on whatever you're doing in that given point in time. And so to answer your question, I think in my mind, I've imagined this world, there are some kind of more tangible projects that I was either going to or supposed to be doing before quarantine started. And then quarantine happened, COVID happened, and those kind of got postponed indefinitely. Um, and those, you know, involve music videos, TV shows, and the like. But I also realize at this point that I hopefully, fingers crossed, um, will still be able to pursue some of those opportunities once I'm done with grad school, or maybe even during grad school itself, which is another exciting thing about the way that I've sort of um, hopefully or will be able to hopefully finesse my program where filmmaking and neuroscience are married in what I want to study. Um, so there, you know, yeah. uh, so one, one quick thing on that is my suspicion, mm -hmm. whatever it's worth, is that it, the way it's going to go down is that you're going to be struck with inspiration for another idea and you're not going to be able to get the damn thing out of your head. And then it doesn't matter where you are, you know, in grad school, you're going to have to sit down and make that project just like you did last time. Uh, so that if I had to put my money on something, I don't think you're going to get to dictate the the timeline for when when the or when the, that does not happen. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I look forward to seeing when that next lightning strike hits you being swept away into the flood of creativity that comes with it. So um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I am an advocate for doing stuff in graduate school that is not strictly graduate school as you uh you know might be able to imagine uh so um but yeah so okay so that's that's really fascinating so let's so unfortunately not strictly speaking a sundance fellow you're just gonna have to settle for princeton neuroscience institute graduate student for now uh, <sighs> unfortunately I know, my parents I know, still I love know. me it's fine i know i know i, I know <laughs> Um, so how, so when did you move to New Jersey? When did it, when did you, have you just gotten settled there? Yep. I've been in New Jersey for two and a half weeks now. I've lived in On my... a scale of one <laughs> to completely and utterly thrilled. How do you find New Jersey so far? I, 
actually really, I really like it. And I say that not, you know, under duress, but more in the sense that I lived, or let's see, how can I summarize this best and not kind of pontificate for too long? I've lived in a lot of places. I moved around a lot as a kid um, and bounced between states, countries, continents, and, you know, eventually was in one place for a very long time, that place being North Carolina, and was very much ready to explore a new place. And ideally, it wasn't, I didn't necessarily want to be in the biggest city. I didn't want to be in the quietest place. I just wanted to be somewhere where I could find or create some semblance of home and familiarity, because home is a very mobile thought in my mind. It's not a, you know, kind of singular stationary place. And so when I interviewed at Princeton, one of the first things that struck me and attracted me to it was the fact that, you know, it's fantastic, prestigious institution, all these different things, that's great. But also I saw myself making a home here. And, and that was in the little town that Princeton is, the surrounding other towns and cities in New Jersey, the proximity to Philadelphia, New York, knowing some people, but also having to completely rebuild my social network in a lot of ways. I, I just saw potential for growth, for challenge and everything like that. And so since being here, I've, I've felt some of those growing pains. I felt some of those challenges already arise. And while in those moments, it has been the source of anxiety, the source of a lot of, you know, existential dread and thought, which is sort of my constant state of being, it's also shown me that I haven't already peaked while being in New Jersey. Um, so I think that's that's why I say that if I were to rate it on a scale, I'd say with like a, on a scale of one to 10, I'm at an 8.8529 specifically, no rounded figures of my excitement and, and looking forward to the potential of it. Awesome, love to hear that. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is I wanted to get the perspective of someone who's an incoming graduate student, and especially during this year where things are um, different for a number of reasons, which we can get into. But I want to just talk about you personally. Um, what are you excited about and what are you nervous about? And um, I'm sure lots of these things will be shared by other people who are in a situation. But I just want to get, you know, however you are or are not thinking about these things what are you what are you like yeah let's get after it um this is what i'm excited about and what are you like oh i don't know how this is or like you know this is something that i'm yeah so just break break that down for me oh that is the question of the year truly um i think what i'm excited about is hopping back into being a student um you know having graduated from undergrad and spent having spent two years doing work full time, still in a research setting, but, you know, as a job, I, I missed that um, sort of the routine, the rhythm of just being a student and, and having class and learning constantly and, and having the student lifestyle mindset, which I know differs quite significantly between undergrad and graduate school. I'm not, you know, assuming that it will be a direct carryover. If anything, I hope it's not because I had some very unhealthy habits, especially related to sleep in undergrad. Um, but there's something about just becoming a full-time learner again, which, which I miss, which is very familiar, um, and that I'm looking forward to. And I, if anything, what this virtual 
sphere of learning allows for us because my whole pro program for the first semester will be virtual, will all be remote. Um, it allows me to have the independence to work at my own pace. It allows me to have the ability to just kind of see how I learn best outside of the having to you know, go into class, going into lab all the time. And so I, I'm looking forward to that element of it. I think that will be very interesting to explore. But in that same strain, and I, I think it's no secret to anyone, it is so weird to try and imagine building up a social sphere and build up sort of a day-to-day, um, -day, like a, a sphere of a lifestyle while you are confined to the four walls of your bedroom and while you are interacting with almost everyone for months at a time over a screen. And, and as, as much as, you know, we're talking, as much as we are having a certain level of, you know, social feedback and the like, there's this slab of space, both virtual and, you know, not imagine and non-imagine between us that limits to a certain extent your ability to legitimately um, connect, vibe, for lack of a better term, with people. And I think that's just, that's going to be odd. I don't know if you can tell, but I am a relatively social person. I'm actually super shy and very socially awkward, but um, I do like people. And I do like being able to riff off others' energy, to work collaboratively, to laugh together, to cry together. Um, and that is changed when you can't actually meet people in a more organic and just natural manner. Um, and so I was, as I alluded to before, I was existentially spiraling about some of these things the other week and sort of was at this precipice where I was asking the question of who do I want to be? What version of myself do I want to be while I'm in grad school? Because at this point I could present so many different versions of who I am. Um, and I could you know, launch into those, but just again, so many different versions. And I was talking to a friend about this and he said, well, why don't you just be yourself? And I paused and I said, well, what the heck does that mean? Like, what is that? <laughs> what does that do for me? I don't, know what you're telling me to do because I do and I might be proven wrong in this honestly but I personally think that the our notion of self is modulated modified by those we are around it's relative um, there's not an absolute self and I am unfortunately not getting my PhD in philosophy so I could be challenged on this very readily but um and so I, I think that the absence of the ability to modulate and continuously update myself around people that I'm meeting for the first time, people who don't have, you know, um, a long-standing relationship with me and know me, they're getting to know me, it does leave me just with this amorphous sense of wanting to be shaped and wanting to be molded that I'm going to have to figure out how to adapt that to what our current setting is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one thing that I think about every time that I move to a new place, uh, and definitely the start of graduate school, I thought a lot about this, is um, I guess the general way to put it is that there's a tension between self-acceptance and self-improvement. Mm -hmm. And um, these two things are both important 
because you are who you are and you got to figure out a way to be okay with that. And uh, that's a big life project that everyone has to, to do in, in some way or another. But then, look, I mean, you're getting your PhD because you want to be better at something tomorrow than you are today. And uh, these two things, you know, they're not necessarily at odds per se, but they are in tension with one another. And um, I think that this is a big sort of balancing act that we're consistently bumping up against in life. But one of the one of the nice opportunities for graduate school specifically, or for any time you're sort of introducing yourself into a new quarter, cohort of people, or a new program, or a new city, is that no one has any pre-existing boxes that they're going to put into you, uh, put, put you into, which is very different than when you have an established presence in a city or a school or whatever it is, because people have expectations about who you are, the kinds of things that you do, and the way that you interact with them and the rest of the world. And to some extent, that's going to exert a pressure on you to, to act uh, according to what those expectations are. And so when you're in this new place, you get to say more so than you otherwise would, these are the parts of me that I'm going to try and bring out. And these are the parts of me that, you know what, I think that they were better left back in North Carolina mm -hmm. uh, or, 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 or whatever it is. And I think that that's a really freeing and profound opportunity that's worth taking advantage of. And I don't think there's anything disingenuous about trying to leverage that breaking point uh, into, in, into, you know, being able to uh, take some of those things and leave some of those things. And I just think it's a fantastic uh, and rare opportunity. And so uh, I think it's a big, big thing for, for people to think about and to try and establish some, some good habits early on, you know? Absolutely. I apologize for any excess noise, by the way. My cats have decided to experiment with parkour. Um, and so they are currently uh, scaling my walls. They are, they are very skilled. They are very, very skilled. But I think that that is so real. Um, and it is actually very affirming to hear it coming from someone else because when I talk about the bringing forth of certain elements of myself and the not suppression but the leaving behind of other elements it does feel like it can feel like you're being artificial right it, it can seem like you're you're putting too much thought and sort of um, mechanistic thinking into how you want to be perceived and how you want to operate in a space but that's also just how I've always thought and I think that I've I envy people who are able to simply be to simply be and to simply present the version of themselves that they have at hand because I think that there's That's a lot not of really power. us is it there's, no. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of self-consciousness a lot of uh, so a, a lot of worrying about this and that and there's always there's always that mediation between uh, yourself and, and, and other, right? Exactly. And it comes with what I think we were talking about before, this broad perspective on the world and on science. If, if you're thinking broadly, it also probably means that you're a broad person. You're thinking about yourself broadly as well. And that presents challenges when it comes to um, both criticizing as well as celebrating elements of yourself, thinking about how you your intentions, your perceptions, everything like that. There's just, there's a lot of constant updating and just that feedback loop that's running, you know, even more rapidly when it comes to self-reflection and self-critique than it does when we're thinking about the perspectives of the world at large. So 
it's a struggle, but I guess it, it comes with the territory. Well, I'm excited to see how you uh, how you play that out over the next couple of years, and and you know get your reflections on it, uh, you know, in in, in uh, you know a couple of years time or whatever. But uh, another so another thing that I want to ask you about is so what's yeah just what's what is the logistics setup right now at um, Princeton? Do you have any in person activities? What is what is graduate starting graduate school look like? Because it's one thing. Uh, you know, a little bit later on, it's like, you know what, you're going to be by yourself the whole time anyway, you know, like, uh, but, but, you know, in theory, uh, when you're starting off, there's a lot more, okay, things are happening, but now they can't. So what is that? What is that? What are things looking like? Uh, so it's interesting. So right now I'm in an apartment with one other person. She's in my cohort. Um, and we are both kind of navigating new life in Princeton together. I have probably one other I guess two other groups of people that I know I've like previously knew in Princeton and now have been seeing. So um, some friends of mine who are either in my, um, the labs that I'm potentially going to rotate in or in my same program. I went over to their apartment on Saturday and made them breakfast because you know, that's how social offerings work these days. I just said, let me make you pancakes and they liked pancakes. that's a that's a good way to make friends. That's it's it's solid. If you just always have pancake mix like on your person, you will be the most popular person. You also need a griddle and, and a stove and the small small minor details. But the pancake. But any mix any version of, of feeding people or uh, you know uh, giving them something to drink. Exactly. That's, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I I've offered my friendship in the form of food to people thus far, um, and probably seen like the same not even six, like four or five people over the course of the last few weeks. Um, And it's really just been more of a, because it's also, so I don't know that many people here yet. And so it's not as though I have this like really large social network to say, oh, I want to see this person, this person, this person. So it's really been connecting with those that I know already, maybe meeting those that are adjacent to them, whether it's their roommates and the like. Um, And there's this consciousness about, okay, we want to make sure that we're being safe and we're being smart, but also we want to see each other. And so you kind of navigate this awkward middle plane area where if anything, it's like you approach and say, what are you most comfortable with? Like, do you want to come into my space? Can I come into your space? Like, are you feeling good about that? Whatever, whatever. I went on a walk. It's taking consent to a whole new level. It takes consent to a whole nother level. It really puts it in this like framework that you're like, oh, this is, you actively like mask on, mask off, all those things. Um, Wait, okay. So I guess my, my question is, um, the start of graduate school is a very exciting time and you have the potential to meet all these people and right mm-hmm. now that's stifled for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering is, is like, is that hard? That's a good question. Um, I would say that for me it isn't, but I say that because I, I have, I'm a very socially anxious person. I, I think I said that before. I can hear you, um, but I'm a very socially anxious person. But the way that my social anxiety works is that it manifests significantly more with people that I've actually already had established relationships with than novel relationships. So I am fantastic at first impressions and meeting new people and making random sporadic connections with strangers. Um, It's much harder to go from that first impression and continue it and say, oh, now we actually have to get to know each other. How How does that work? How do we do that? And so in the 
the random ways and avenues that have popped up already to get to know people in a very weird way. Like um, it's grad school orientation week and they had a speed friending event yesterday over Zoom where you were in a Zoom breakout room with someone for five minutes and just could talk about anything. And it like in, in normal circumstances, you'd be like, this is the most awkward, like tense thing ever. But I think everyone's a little bit more, um, open to kind of that like summer camp awkwardness of getting to know people now because we have no other options there's a little bit of a a desperation to it so I got to meet like nine new people one of the the greatest compliment that I got from that session is that one girl that I was paired with we were talking she's like oh finally a grad student with a personality thank goodness and and I felt so honored and I said I I'm going to make it in grad school. I think I've got this under control. Um, and of course had to have my glass of wine sitting next to me the whole time and took sips in between each session just to make sure that I was um, still staying sane. But I don't think the prospect of meeting new people is as daunting as just the opportunities to do it. Um, because people aren't trafficking about, you can't have those happenstance run-ins. You can't have the, um, kind of platonic meet cutes and the like. And so you just have to take advantage of the opportunities when they come, even if it involves being on Zoom for a speed friending session for two hours and being completely drained afterwards. Yeah, um, really interesting. So, okay, so we started to get into this earlier, but uh, one of your big interests going into grad school is naturalistic stimuli so maybe can you tell me a little bit you know you're starting into the connection between how you're thinking about film and Mm -hmm. how you're thinking about that and just sort of overall what's what your interest is there what that means to you what you what you think is cool about it absolutely so I was first introduced to naturalistic stimuli work uh, through a colloquium talk that was given by Dr. Janice Chen who's a professor at Johns Hopkins University and she came to Duke for one of our uh, colloquia series and was talking about her work on um, this data set called the Sherlock Holmes data set, where they were essentially showing participants in the scanner parts of episodes from Sherlock, the show, and asking them about like, I guess, I think it was them recounting or retracing the events that happened over the course of the um, of the episode or the visual stimulus that they were being shown. And they were basically using this to not only form understandings of memory, but also time perception. Um, and I I heard her talk and she's also just like such a fantastically cool person. And what she was presenting was so cool. I said, this is, this is something here. Like people are using actual existing films, shows, TV episodes, like all these different things to study things in the scanner because I, you know, I've been relatively well cemented in the cognitive neuroscience world for uh, the past few years and, and digested some of the literature, especially related to attention, memory, decision making. Um, but seeing an experiment that wasn't centered around or designed around having a somewhat contrived stimulus or somewhat contrived, you know, um, m- method or design that you, you're focused on what the audience or what the participant is learning rather than actually thinking that much about the stimulus that you're using and 
she kind of launched into her talk just a lot about how with naturalistic stimuli, so to define, I guess, what naturalistic stimuli is, it's any type of stimuli um, that comes or is based in like narrative. So it could be stories um, written or spoken. It could be, um, like I talked about, like visual experiences. So movie clips, trailers, the like, it could be music. Um, it's anything that has sort of a more generalizable um, application or context. So it's not necessarily just within these four experimental walls that you're using it. And it was so intriguing to me for a number of reasons, because I think that I, I think a lot about, and maybe it comes with the, the whole broad science perspective on things. I think a lot about taking our science outside of the confines of our experimental controls and outside of the con confines of our kind of ivory tower understanding of the world and saying, well, is this how people would respond to this and react to this in real life? Um, would you show them, you know, a box with lines angled at a specific way? And they'd say, oh yeah, I totally understand that this is trying to, you know, get me to distinguish between feature attributes and the like, or do you need to show them something that they'd actually say, oh yeah, this, this totally makes sense. Not even, um, rather than thinking about it as simplifying, you're actually making it more complex. You're making it more well-rounded and nuanced. And so I think it was very intriguing to me. I, I right away just wanted to dive into the literature and understand more about it, and then found out this entire network of researchers who were really focusing on it and, and saying, in our experiments, with whatever kind of elements or understandings that we're trying to reach about cognitive neuroscience, whether it be understanding more about memory or perception or social cognition or time perception or any kind of any wide range of things in that realm, we want to use stimuli that actually exist and that we'd see in the real world that we can take out of this experimental context. And that was around the time, I can't remember exactly you know, how it all aligned, but I'd either already gone into pre-production for Godspeed or was thinking about Godspeed as an idea more legitimately and, and bringing in my scientific perspective to filmmaking and saying, oh, because I'm a scientist, I think of you know, film in this, that, or the other way. But realizing I could also reverse that relationship and have it become bi-directional where I was saying, well, because of my understanding and my thoughts and feelings about film and the specific choices that are made in the way that a scene is constructed, the way that character arcs are written, the way that um, colors are shown or you know angles are chosen, that can actually tell us so much about neuroscience. That can tell us so much about the brain. And so, I've been really trying to get the term neurocinematics to happen. I'm, I'm like waiting for it to just be trending one day and everyone wants to talk about it. But neurocinematics, I guess, is the more specific focus on the neuroscience of film. So within the realm when, of- When we put out this episode, we'll make sure to use the hashtag neurocinematics. Yes, thank you. We're making it happen. <laughs> we're making it happen. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, so, what were you saying? No, yeah, so neurocinematics falls within this larger umbrella of neuroaesthetics, which is also its own field in itself, but then also naturalistic stimuli use, where you're saying, I want to understand more about how visual media, visual experiences, visual narratives are impacted by and also impact the brain. So again, just kind of illustrating that bi-directional relationship. Um, 
And I want to do that in a way that I'm thinking specifically, I guess, in the context of affect and saying, what is it about our kind of, whether it's predisposed affective states or kind of mood and the like, that influence what type of media we want to consume. Like when I want to laugh or when I'm sad, do I want to laugh or do I want to cry? So will I choose a comedy or will I choose the ending of one of those Air Bud movies where a dog dies? Do they die in Air Bud? Actually, I've never seen Air Bud. <laughs> well, you know, spoiler alert. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure though. Okay, I mean, I'll have to check on that. Um, but yeah, I don't so, think Air Bud ever dies because there's there's like there's multiple right. uh, installments of the franchise. But is right? it the same Air Bud or is it like there's Air Buds, multiple Air Buds? Well, you've exhausted my knowledge of Air Bud, so uh, I, I wouldn't this. be able to. I wouldn't be able to say. <laughs> but I, I do imagine that that's an ending to some dog stories. Is that the dog dies, and that is is about the most uh, heart wrenching. That is uh, very true. Yeah, that, that's all really interesting. So, I. Uh, First of all, I'm really excited to see what you what you do with this, what you do with hashtag neurocinematics, and uh, just in general, sort of pursuing naturalistic stimuli. And it's definitely something I'm highly sympathetic to. One of my big um, interests, issues, whatever you want to call it, with psychology is making sure that whatever we're doing in the lab connects to what actually exists in the real world. Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, at the end of the day. Uh, psychology is not about, uh, c you know, con perfectly controlled variables. It's not about replicating experiments. It's about describing human behavior as it actually exists in real people throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And to the extent to which controlling variables and replicating experiments can tell us something about it, then great, that's a tool. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in, in these intermediary, um, you know, considerations that we forget that what we actually care about today is humans and whatever it is they're doing in the wild exactly. and um, so i'm really excited to see programs of research that are developing toward that but um at any rate i want to i want to wrap up in the next couple of minutes but before we do um i want to touch on let's see a uh there was a paper that you published last year in frontiers in you can tell me what it was uh, but it was it was um, about uh, you know sort of making some observations about neuroscience and race, mm -hmm. and so I'm interested to get your perspective on that because I think that you know there have been additions to that conversation, let's just say, um, since that uh, that article came out. So maybe briefly touch on what was that article saying, and what, um, how has uh, your thoughts on that developed um, recently? Give me mm -hmm. give me your state of the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the field on that. And then uh, if you have stuff that it's like, you know, from my perspective as a, you know, sort of early career researcher, beginning graduate school, this is what I'd like to see uh, going forward um, for me and, and my peers. Um, I'd love to hear that as well. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess that paper in summary, that piece in summary was saying that science, especially neuroscience and related fields, cannot and should not continue assuming a certain level of neutrality and objectivity when it comes to issues such as race, when it comes to issues such as scientific racism, because in many ways our practices historically and even in current day um, have made us complicit. And what's so interesting about 
I guess the, the place that I was at when I originally wrote that piece, the first version of that was written when I was a senior. So I wrote it instead of writing my thesis. I did eventually write my thesis, but I was writing that instead. And it almost, in a way, the, the first iteration of it had a manifesto-like energy to it where I wrote 4,000 words and was essentially saying, you know, even, I mean, at that point, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself a scientist, whether early career or not. I just said, you know, as a scientist to be, as a trainee coming up in this, I've already noticed and identified these problems. And if it continues this way, I don't know if this is a field that I can continue to, you know, be affiliated with and part of because this affects me directly as a Black woman in neuroscience. Um, I don't often see people who look like me who have the same experiences as I do. And even more so than not having the visibility, there's the lack of discussion around why that might be. Um, I get a lot of, or I'd gotten a lot of, you know, it's just the way it is. It's just the way it's set up. There's a pipeline issue. We don't have people who are interested and so on and so forth. And rather than this accounting of maybe there is some implicit, explicit, direct and indirect uh, roles that the way that our field is structured has played into this. And so that was my thinking at the time. Um, and then seeing kind of how that was, how that evolved even within that piece as I reformatted it and restructured it for the um, special issue in Frontiers. I think that that thought still stands. And if anything, and the fact that that has come, that particular commentary piece has come to light with more recent events speaks to this notion that it's the discussion that still needs to be had. Um, and I always chuckle a little bit, only a little bit, when people refer to it as like a very timely piece. And I said, well, I wrote it in an atemporal context. It wasn't written because I knew that two or four years down the line, we would be in the middle of this kind of awakening of, of the larger world, but also the scientific field saying that maybe we should be having these discussions. I wrote it. Another uh, one thing I want to flag about your piece is that most of the stuff that you cite in there is historical. Right. So it's not like you're like, oh, well, in 2015, there was this <laughs> thing. It's like, no, this is the longstanding precedent uh, that has been established. And our response to it uh, by necessity is a response to this longstanding historical precedent. Exactly. Um, so exactly. yeah, no, it, it, in, in a very real sense, I think atemporal, or at least, uh, you know, temporal, uh, spanning the whole totality of our, of, 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 of neuroscience, um, for sure. So anyway, sorry. Absolutely. No, 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 definitely. And, and I think another interesting thing, so there's a talk that I've been preparing for, actually procrastinating on preparing for. So as soon as I get off this uh, podcast and actually put on real clothes instead of wearing my pajamas, apologies, um, I will probably kind of be developing that further. But I, I'm giving a talk that basically speaks to the visual culture of academia and saying that even in our current day, so very directly speaking to current day, in our current day, handlings and reflections and call to action on many issues that people are having discussions on more, whether it be related to societal racism, um, kind of anti-blackness on a global scale and the like, we still have to make sure that we're not just giving ourselves that pat on the back uh, for talking about it and for addressing it and finally saying something. And also furthermore on that point, that it does not become a matter of optics, that we're saying something just so that it can be seen that we're saying it. Because if anything, making it about 
kind of the the optics, the presentation, the um, the it, it it creates a veneer of progress that actually hurts the very people that are affected by it, because your climate and inclusion committees, your diversity initiatives, are really just for show, and they don't hit at the cores of the issues, at the cores of the culture that's been perpetuated that limit people's access to the field and beyond. And so I think yeah, that's no, that, that seems very important the, to not mistake the appearance of progress with actual progress. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so to that end, let's, let's maybe make this the final question here so you can go on and, and do the, what you're actually supposed to be doing. Um, uh, but so if you could, if you could wave your wand and make one thing, uh, different sort of instantiate, uh, just one big change is what, 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 what comes to mind for, for a candidate of what that, what that might be. And when we're saying instantiate a change in what aspects, like with relation to academia, the world at large, personally, how do we make academia a better place for traditionally uh, underrepresented um, uh, groups of people? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, the, truly, the first point that comes to mind for me is reforming. I was going to say reformatting, but I actually do want to say reforming tenure structures. Because I think that at least with um, American institutions, the way that tenure and chasing after tenure, securing tenure works out, it limits significantly um, the ability to have the exploration, um, both you know research related and non-research related within academia of scientific individuality and just kind of scientific ethical development because you're you're so focused on I need to have job security I need to you know kind of have the set established position at this university that maybe I can't speak out when when things go wrong whether they affect me directly or I want to be an ally um, maybe the work that I'm doing completely and totally encompasses all of my energy and I'm not actually able to focus on being there for my trainees who who need support um, be there for my colleagues who need you know um, to be given a voice like you you're so focused on what it looks like to be in good standing with the university that will either be offering you or not offering you the security that you're unable to to step out of that like kind of strain that realm of of conformity and I say conformity kind of with that upwards inflection because I don't know if that's the word that I'm looking for and there's, there's so many other ways, too. I think we, we do need to evaluate uh, hiring practices always. We do need to evaluate outreach always. But um, I, I've not recently, but in the last few months, been introduced to this idea of in-reach rather than outreach. It's not always about trying to do your best to pull as many new faces into the field as possible, because if if the field itself is still toxic, then all you're going to do is bring in more people to be affected by that. Um, you have to focus on subverting, I guess, the, the structure as it currently stands before ever thinking that the answer to the problem is having more faces of color, having more diversity. Um, so I think I think that's what I'd want to fix first. If I, if I had my magical wand, hopefully, you know, 
very elegant. And... I believe you get that in your second year of, of grad school when they give you the medical. Oh, they get it. Oh, so. that's so. So will I get it over Zoom if I'm still in the? <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll be a virtual magic wand. Uh, at any rate, that sounds approximately correct in an important sense, which is that the tenure system, it, as it's you know currently designed is meant to perpetuate whatever is currently happening. And so the fact of the matter is, is if we just said, look, okay, if you are a tenured professor right now, you're axed. We're sorry, you're done. Bye-bye. You're gone. And we were now able to rehire a new thing. I I mean, we'd basically, we wouldn't solve all of our problems immediately, but the entire deep, deep structure of, of the field would change radically. And, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, there's, again, you know, we were talking about tensions earlier on between self-acceptance and self-improvement. And, and certainly this is another tension, uh, uh, which is that, you know, there are certain things that academia is designed to do, which is move slowly, essentially, in this institutional sense, um, versus, well, we've identified a problem and, uh, you know, some of the best ways to fix it are, you know, it's we're not working in a in an institution mm-hmm. in a system that is designed to make quick changes like that exactly um exactly. but um at any rate uh Shade, this has been a huge pleasure for me and it's it's been fun to to hear from you different aspects of your story and what you're interested in and um i for one am extremely excited to see how that plays out for you over the future over the next few years and, and beyond Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time talking and so did my cats. They're not here now because they found another room to play in, but thoroughly appreciate you inviting me here and the conversations we've gotten to have and just really appreciate getting to meet another broad thinker. That was my conversation with Shade Abiodun. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I think she has so much interesting stuff to say and it's nice to just be able to have a conversation with someone who you ask them a question and just open up in a really fruitful and engaging way. And she certainly has that quality. And I think it's just listening to her, it's like, wow, this person is going places. She's going to do a lot of cool stuff. And I think anyone who has come in contact her is going to have a sense of like, oh yeah, it's going to be sweet to see what she does in the future. At any rate, if you want to connect with me, you can subscribe to this show you can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce. And my preferred way of keeping in contact with people is my newsletter, Dear Luke, which um, I uh, took a break from during COVID as I talked about in my recent episode of Coming Back From COVID. But uh, since then I've, I've sort of regained quite a bit of inspiration from it and I've enjoyed the conversations that it sparked, particularly in the last couple of weeks with friends and family. And I think that it's, uh, at least in my own personal conversations with those people, been a productive starting point for saying, you know, here's here's what I've been feeling. Here's what I think about it. Other people have been like, yeah, hey, that's similar to my experience with this. And then being able to connect on that more emotional level and then be able to conceptualize or, um, you know, have a handle by which to grasp what's going on. And uh, so if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, the newsletter is called Dear Luke. You can find it on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter. It comes out every Friday. Uh, the last letter was called On the Thickness of Life, 
something uh, that I think a lot, a lot about as a philosophical concept about how a lot of what makes life worthwhile is engaging with the thickness of it, the multi-dimensional aspects of it, all the different opportunities that there are. And that's something that we've been deprived of under COVID. And uh, next week's letter is on composers and arrangers. If you're interested in hearing more about that, you can subscribe. At any rate, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I'll be back next week with more Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.